should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show, your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. I'm Michelle Miao, your host, and uh, I should say welcome, welcome, welcome to our first ever, ever production of our Commonwealth Club partnership. So John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is here. Well, I should say I'm here with you. (laughs) (laughs) We're, We're both here together. We're very excited to be here with our first guest at our first yes. place at the first Commonwealth Club place um, and uh, this is going to be fun this is going to be a weekly thing people can actually come here and, and enjoy our, sh- our show live that's right so just to remind everyone who's tuning in here on Progressive Voices Network and the Michelle Miao show on Thursdays we're going to do a live radio broadcast at the Commonwealth Club in which Commonwealth Club members are invited. The public will definitely be invited. You can find out information on how you can come to our shows by going to commonwealthclub.org. Just some exciting guests coming up besides our very first guest, which I'll introduce in just a little bit, but some names out there. I think we're going to talk to some iconic, legendary LGBTQ activists who have founded um, you know, LGBT organizations here in San Francisco, like Donna Hitchens with the National Center for Lesbian Rights. Right. We'll have social justice warriors like Dolores Huerta, who's excited about coming on the program, mm-hmm. and um, some new movers and shakers and uh, momentum builders like Alicia Garza, who's a co-founder of Black Lives Matter. So make sure you head to commonwealthclub.org and, and, and keep in touch. Follow us on what Donald Trump likes, Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Before we get our program started, though, you know, John, we always like to check in on what's happening with the country. And just a few days ago, the, uh, the, the country did go through an election that was incredibly exciting. I want to hear your thoughts because this entire year so far, I have been whining, whining, whining about, you know, Donald Trump's election and, and being one of those people where I'm like, I think we're all going to die. It's a zombie apocalypse. And you have been realistic, pragmatic, and one of those voices who have continuously said, we need to get in locally. We need to get in statewide. We need to start winning these positions in order to make the change. How do you feel about the election results? Um, Obviously, just speaking my own views, Commonwealth Club doesn't take positions, but uh, I do. I thought it was exciting, and, and actually, you, I think you, you got it. You know, the, the, the headlines out of this were the governorships in New Jersey and Virginia. Um, and Virginia, people were get, Democrats were getting a little worried about. They thought it was going to be pretty close. Turned out to be kind of a romp for the Democrat. And New Jersey, of course, I think people expected to go Democrat after uh, 
uh, Chris Christie had kind of sunk to record lows. Um, but it, it, yeah, the real news was all of those uh, le state legislative seats, um, mayoral seats across the country where Democrats actually really did well. They cleaned up in, in some ways. Uh, Tom Steyer, who's the, you know, our, one of our local billionaires here who has been funding a lot of uh, Democratic causes most recently. People have probably seen him in the headlines calling for, uh, actually demanding um, impeachment against the, uh, proceedings against the president. He apparently was very happy because he put $3 million specifically into trying to get, you know, people elected on, on these other levels. And that was one of the areas that uh, a lot of Democrat, you know, Democratic office holders and Democratic Party operatives, if you will, had been kind of upset about over the past eight years or so because, or nine years, because they were saying during the Obama years, his popularity didn't sink down to people running for those positions. So Democrats lost about a thousand of these legislative seats and, and you know, on local and state levels. And that's why you see it when you look across the country, so many of the, you know, a really strong majority of the, the state governments are run by Republicans um, because the Democrats just haven't had that, you know, steady feeding of people who, you know, are city council people, mayors, state legislators, and then they're, they're candidates for governor. So the, the Democratic uh, victories on Tuesday, am I right? It was Tuesday? Yeah. No, okay. Uh, did a lot to kind of counter some of the, the degradation the Democrats have had in, in their offices. And of course, they're going to have to keep it up, you know. Mm -hmm. But um, there's also, I'd be interested in hearing what you think, there's also just the, the uh, for lack of a better term, the emotional factor. Because it has been, oh, special election, we could win this, you know, Atlanta suburban seat that was, you know, Newt Gingrich's seat and all of that kind of stuff, and you lose it, and it becomes dispiriting. Um, how, how important do you think just the, the emotional impact of, hey, it can be done mm -hmm. is from Tuesday? Well, for a voter my age and uh, the multiple identities that I, you know, uh, identify with, mm -hmm. it was like a dream come true. It was like these fantasies that I've had all my life where it was like one day, you know, they'll like people like me or they'll let people like me, you know, be in the positions that uh, other people are. Mm -hmm. So in some ways it was like, I can't believe this is actually happening. If you had trans women who were elected, you had refugees who were elected, you had women who were elected, and people of color. I mean, it was like, really? This is happening? So we should hear more. Uh, definitely from you later on. Uh, by the way, John Zipper hosts his week-to-week week, week -week political roundtable talk that uh, is produced here at the Commonwealth Club. And you can definitely go to michellemeow.com for all of those programs that we air. It airs on Friday on the Progressive Voices Network at 4 o'clock. But let's get today's program started. Today's show is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Our special guest is here live, warm, in a human body <laughs> with us at the Commonwealth Club, and she officially is our very first guest at the inaugural Michelle Miao Commonwealth Club program, and she is the artistic director of the San Francisco Transgender Film Festival. As I mentioned earlier, you know, even the, the transgender community is experiencing some firsts as far as like the political world oh. of America goes. But this film festival in San Francisco has been around for 20 years. Let's welcome Shauna Virago to the program. Shauna, welcome. Thank you. 
very honored uh, to be your first guest here at the Commonwealth Club, so thank you. It's perfect timing. The film festival kicks off tomorrow, November 10th. There's a lot happening, and I know that uh, you've got some exciting you know, documentaries, films that you want to talk about, but I think because it is the inaugural first program and you're such an iconic legend in our community, really a pioneer, uh, somebody who has performed as a trans woman since the 90s, like punk world, underground, LGBTQ, when it wasn't even LGBTQ. Let's talk about you. Let's talk about, you know, Shauna and, uh, and, and like, did you, where, are you a transplant? Like a lot of queer people who came to San Francisco in the 80s, 90s? Yeah, I, um, I moved here in the early 1990s from Los Angeles. And... Um, I spent some time here in the 1980s um, because of the music scene and the punk scene. And so between the, the late eight, mid to late 80s and the early 90s, I still have this vision of this very gritty town that people spent most of their time only going out at night, especially trans people, because it, it still had this kind of gritty factor to it. And, um, and I, it's still there you know, but maybe not in the same way. So I'm a transplant. I, um, I felt the trans, the potential for a, a really completely well-rounded or kind of well-rounded life in San Francisco was much more of an option than Los Angeles offered. Go ahead, John. I was just going to say, um, how has... I mean, we've all seen San Francisco change recently. I'm a much more recent transplant from... Well, the early part of this century into San Francisco, but um, so I haven't seen the changes that you know when I'm talking to someone who's who either grew up here or moved here in the '70s, and they're like, "Oh my gosh, San Francisco has changed so much." But specifically for the transgender community, and and you know, has it become more friendly, less friendly, uh, more supportive, less supportive, or, or do those changes not really, uh, you know, affect the community? It's other stuff that we're seeing change on you know on the political level or the economic level. That's a really great <laughs> series of questions. And Sorry. it's interesting because um, talking to some of my friends, mm -hmm. the, the big issue, I think, for a lot of white people and white queers has been gentrification. Whereas for still a lot of um, trans, especially trans women of color, the issue is still police abuse. Mm -hmm. So it really depends who you ask. And... Um, uh, doing police accountability organizing was a, a big part of my life in the 90s and the early aughts. And I, you know, what's interesting is you could, you could do that work now in the city and you might do some kind of statistical analysis of how m much uh, police abuse is going on f um, for trans people. And those numbers might look not very large, like they looked in the 90s, it was like 50% of all hate crimes and hate violence was from law enforcement. Wow. And I think that's where it does intersect with who's still here in the city, gentrification. Um, so a lot of people have had to move out. Mm -hmm. And people, um, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm a, a good leftist. And so I think the entire Bay Area has changed where... Um, you know, in West Oakland, you had the School of Unity and Liberation in the 90s. Mm -hmm. They did all this wonderful leftist organizing. And so that really represented the communities who lived there. 
And so now, of course, it's been highly, I would say, kind of, you know, in a gentrified, which is a nice way for saying invaded. Yeah. Um, so West Oakland has changed. Yeah. And also, just as someone who intersected a lot of queer communities, you know, you look at, like, cisgendered lesbian and dyke communities and bars are gone and um, gay male bars and people um, being sort of intersecting with les- with leather communities. And, yeah. you know, you had, like, the jackhammer right on Church Street and um, Daddy's and the Phoenix and all these bars and the Castro. So um, as someone who still comes from a sort of like in my mind I'm hanging out with Johnny Thunders in New York and we're just like on our stoop <laughs> talking about you know Lou Reed or uh, the Dead Kennedys or something like mm-hmm. I know I'm I'm a kind of a punk romantic and I'm, I'm sort of living in the past but I, I, I think it shows that there are still vibrant things happening here such as the San Francisco Transgender Film Festival right and other things Right. But that sounds like a great segue to talk about the tra- San Francisco Transgender <laughs> Film Festival. Well, I, yes, yes. In, in a, and, and I want to get there. I had one burning question, and, and that's just because in a lot of your music, I don't want to forget, um, and especially for those tuning in for the first time to the program, Shauna Virago is a, 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 an amazing, talented musician, uh, punk, rocker. A lot of your music that was out before all this mainstream focus on the transgender community really spoke to the struggles of not just like transgender people specifically, but all of us who are the queers, the weirdos, the punks, the uh, the uh, people who are nonconforming. Those are when when these buzzwords were not buzzwords. And so in, in kind of dovetailing from John's question of like these changes, I mean, even our own community, our art, our expression has changed. How has the changes impacted even your work? Uh, great questions. Um, it's interesting. I was thinking how when I um, was playing music when I was younger, you know, um, First of all, I've never really been drawn to commercial art or commercial music. And so that might m- mean going to see, you know, Cassavetti films or listening to uh, Throbbing Gristle. Or, so I, I think I come from a, a fairly, what I don't think is extreme, but apparently it can be extreme, right? And, um, you know, things get put on a museum wall, like Picasso paintings. But at one time, that was like outrageous. Yeah. And people had never seen anything like that visually. They didn't know what to make, how to make sense of it. And I still like art that makes us think that way or have to confront various things. And so I never thought of a commercial music or cinema as a place that would ever want me. And that was never a dream of mine. And so I have seen that now. Is It is possible for gender nonconforming people, uh, for trans people, I would say more uh, queers of color as well. There, there are more places to get your um, your art out there in a commercial way, and that's a big change. Mm-hmm. Now, whether that's true of San Francisco, like I, I appreciate being on a show like this that I think kind of intersects with all of these worlds, and I appreciate that because I think um, people get sort of hypnotized by the bright lights and they forget. No, there's all this great stuff still going on. Yeah. Outside of the bright lights. And we just got uh, a great article by uh, Shondaland 
Shonda Rhimes uh, right. online magazine. And it just came out of the blue, and they were really great. And it is showing how you can kind of have this sort of um, leftist progressive agenda mm -hmm. and also kind of use commercial art, commercial cinema, commercial um, TV to sort of help shift uh, sort of mainstream narratives. Don't go away. We'll continue with the Michelle Meow Show right after these messages. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side as a unified team of the best fertility specialists guided by the highest ethical standards Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boyes came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year, with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face -face with today's thought leaders. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for that. And thank you for doing what you do. So bringing our attention to the 20th year anniversary of the San Francisco Transgender Film Festival, uh, you're kicking off this milestone with films, documentary, voices, expressions from around the world. It's, it's a global focus this year, right? Yeah, I think um, it is a global focus. It, when we started in 1997, it, it was very local, and it would be getting um, you know, maybe 25 submissions. Mm -hmm. Probably we knew most of the people. Our outreach plan was a few phone calls and putting flyers up on Valencia Street. And you know, we had a promotional campaign, and everyone knew we were going to have a film festival. Yeah. And that's that's change where we have to use social media effectively to get people out. Um, it's a I think it's it's really a community making event. That's our focus to kind of create a communal cinematic experience. That's not just seeing the latest Star Trek film. And I love Star Trek or Thor. Like there's so much more going on that speaks to our various communities. Um, I'm sure I did not answer your question. No, no, yes, you did. <laughs> I, I think that that's a great, you know, coming around, especially if, when you're celebrating a milestone, because 
let's face it, you know, uh, our communities don't only exist in these urban cities, uh, even though it started here. John. I was just going to go more on the, the international aspect. I mean, what are, what are you drawing on from that? I mean, what are we going to see at this uh, festival? Sure. So um, we still have really great local filmmakers mm-hmm. making work. Um, we have a film from Ecuador. I think it's the first film we've ever had from Ecuador called uh, Sununu, The Revolution of Love. And it's about a trans couple that made international headlines there last year. Um, they, it's uh, someone on the trans man spectrum and the, the trans woman spectrum who um, have had a child. And so that uh, has made really big news um, because um, to me it's, it shouldn't make big news, but it still does. And I think they're, this film shows they have kind of a, a, a real dignity yeah. of just people that love one another and want to raise their children. And I think it shows, like, um, I know we had this great election, and I agree with you. It's who, it is a dream come true, you know, like who got elected. And I agree, you know, no one knows who I'm talking to when I say you. I'm, <laughs> so I agree with Michelle, I agree with John, I agree with you both that um, getting local elections is so important. And um, I think for so many of us, I think, though we've been behind the scenes and, and sort of underground, that that's still where so much of our work is really going on and important. It's the kind of interpersonal interactions we're having. And I think a film like this shows that, that these are not people seeking the limelight. Mm-hmm. They just want to raise a family, mm-hmm. which is still kind of a, a radical act mm-hmm. in this day and age for queers to do. I was looking at the list of films that uh, the uh, you know filmgoers who are participating this weekend will see, and a lot of it is sharing the authentic lived experiences of transgender people. So even if it's a fiction story or something like that, um, it's still depicting a very authentic story of what life is like for a transgender person. So I was curious to ask you as the artistic director Mm -hmm. of this film festival and what's happening in Hollywood, and there's this call, a mega campaign for more transgender actors and actresses to actually take up roles, to play transgender roles. Um, You know, is is that a quote-unquote dream come true for you too I mean is it something that you as somebody who founded a film festival 20 years ago maybe you know we 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 still need these moments for ourselves in order to tell our stories but I think in Hollywood it's a little different because you're not the only person there at the table telling that story yeah I think Hollywood's fascinating um, to me from its its kind of onset you know that um, it, in a way, it's always been a creative team. And, but it, it's also had a few people who have shaped the stories. Mm-hmm. And we've seen Harvey Weinstein being one of those people. And so in a way, um, he's kind of a, unfortunately he represents like the Louis Mayers and these guys that use their power to um, not only do sexual assault, but I think to kind of censor the potential that we could tell. And so I think there's a, I think I've had to do a lot of growing and to kind of look at commercial art has a lot of potential. And I think it's, it's come, it's come a long way since when I was a child, you know, and you might have, um, happy days on TV, you know, this like myth of American life in the fifties, very white and not interesting, 
you know, and bad acting and stories weren't well written. And, you know, and I think now there's there is a lot of things like Orange is the New Black. Right. Things that are, are maybe they're not as hard hitting as I would like, mm-hmm. but I do think they're they're helping um, educate people who need educated on some issues. And uh, I think uh, there's a place for that. And I would have said there there's not a place for that. There's too many compromises that it's still about selling advertising dollars. Yeah. But I think we're we're going through a major shift here in, in ways we we all don't understand still in our culture. And I, because of social media, that's kind of, on the one hand, we have this like white supremacist madman uh, who's in, you know, who? The aptly named White House. <laughs> and I say don't take his Twitter account down. Don't take it down. Let's not go there. Mm-hmm. You know, let's, let's enlarge freedom of speech. But I think it's also social media is, is, u- is being used in a way like uh, for other struggles, uh, for other art getting out there. And there's a place for all of us, I think. There's a place for underground cinema you know, as well as commercial cinema and underground music. You mentioned when you started this, uh, maybe 25 submissions would come in. How many submissions do you have now? We usually get about 150. Mm -hmm. And it's also, uh, in the past, people, um, and I just want to put a shout out to my good friends Christopher Lee and Alex Austin, who uh, were the the original founders of the festival. Mm -hmm. And they brought me in Mm -hmm. to be part of the team. But... um, you know, people would submit films, uh, 16 millimeter, Super 8, or VHS tapes. Oh. You know, um, that was, and then DVDs, and now we're getting digital submissions. So, uh, you know, film is almost like a metaphor mm-hmm. for uh, an art form versus the actual kind of process uh, that people are using. In. I was going to ask if you have received any submissions shot all on iPhone. Yes, actually several. And um, it's, I think we still try to prioritize a lot of first-time filmmakers and very kind of radical filmmakers mm-hmm. that most festivals still won't touch. And um, iPhones and other smartphones are one of the ways people are doing it mm-hmm. and people are still doing things like um using stills they'll just shoot stills and on their phone and then they'll go use iMovie or something and create a, a small digital film and some of those are really you know beautiful and very creative so there are shorts and features this year we um are doing all shorts okay the longest film is 30 minutes mm-hmm. And it's made by a local filmmaker, um, Seralta Jane Vey. It's called The Goldfish Casino. And um, it's about, uh, and it's a queer musical. And it's kind of, it also has kind of an anarchist feel to it for me, but it's beautifully shot and really a lot of um, showing like DIY can also mean kind of extravagant in its costumes. And it's about the journey of this plucky salmon navigating our kind of dying rivers and things, and yet it's very entertaining. Um, 
Yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, a few more, or actually a couple more questions, and then we're going to move on to our second half of the show, in which we'll actually speak to a filmmaker who, who has submitted yes. his work. Yes. Storm Miguel Flores. Very excited to talk to him. Um, but how do we get tickets and, and all that good stuff? Let's get that out of the way. Sure. So the festival is happening this weekend. Um, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday at the Roxy in the Mission. And people can um, get tickets by going to our website, sftff.org, which is going to sound like <laughs> I know on the radio. But um, we usually sell out. We still have some tickets left. So we hope, you know, there is definitely all genders are welcome. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting how... Uh, People sometimes think that it's, um, they don't realize we all have a gender story. And sometimes we try to focus on things that might not traditionally seem like a trans story, a gender non-conforming story, you know. So I think we have something for everybody in the festival. You do. I am excited for the film festival. You'll definitely catch me as a participant. John, any uh, last questions for Shauna? I would want to talk all about all of these many stories because each time you, you describe a film, I, I, what I think is not just that we're hearing someone else's story, but I'm excited. You know, what interests me is that everyone, will, every filmmaker will take a different creative approach to it. And that's kind of what's, you know, I come from the world of print magazines. You might have three magazines published on the same topic, but it's always excited me how they do it, what, what they, how they use the paper, how they use colors, how they use imagery. How a filmmaker, you know, approaches like you're just talking about the 30-minute the film and, you know, kind of going as big as they can versus someone who maybe is with an iPhone and telling them perhaps a more intimate story. That kind of creativity just always fascinates me in film. Yeah. And one thing I, I want to say to that, and it's such a good point, is um, I wish there was a way back to, like, if I had a wand, that I, I think, you know, well, first, politics. We'll vote for people we're excited by. I really think it's that simple. Yeah. If we're excited by somebody, they're telling the truth, they're relating to us, we'll, we'll vote for them, we'll be excited by them. And I think, you know, there's this, this corporate power that says films have to be, you know, 92 minutes long to be in a movie theater. And um, I actually think we would all, like a communal experience with art, if it was varied. And mm-hmm. so I think we, we see that. People come out and people might give a standing ovation to a three-minute movie. And I think uh, there's no reason that your, your Metreons and other places can't like, program things differently. Yeah. I remember when, this is going to really sound weird, but I remember when HBO first came out. And I, I, we didn't have it, but I'd go visit my father. He had HBO, so of course, and I'm watching a lot of it. And they would show shorts in between some of the films. And I was, I was seeing stuff that I had never seen, which probably means I had a bit of a movie poverty in my life. But yeah, adding those things to it was a, was a total plus, you know? And, and obviously it was great for the filmmakers who got their shorts shown. But um, the more you get to see uh, all of these different approaches I think it just makes us at all richer, both for the people trying to express something, as well as those of us who love seeing stories, true and you know, fiction and nonfiction. Absolutely. Sean, I want to thank you uh, and everyone who is a part of the 20th year anniversary of the San Francisco Transgender Film Festival. 
My last question to you is actually a personal one. I mean, just hearing you talk about your art, your passion, your music, um, I, I, I wonder what dinner is like at home for you and your husband, Sean Dorsey, who also is an artistic director, founder of Fresh Meat Productions, uh, another um, avenue for art and performances, and he's also a choreographer. I mean, you guys are just like the it couple <laughs> in, in you know the San Francisco Bay Area when it comes to creating platforms for our expressions and authentic lives. So, yeah, what do you guys talk about at the dinner table? Um. Well, I, I think I'm very, very lucky, yeah. you know, and so uh, we do, we care about art, we care about the way um, things can, the intersectionality of like aesthetics and struggle can really make extraordinary art. And I think our, our friends also kind of um, come from kind of a leftist place with their politics and also their art, you know. And um, I know you're going to interview Stormy Gil Flores, who's a very talented artist, musician, and filmmaker. And, you know, he is a person I go to as well. And uh, Eric Garcia, who's our festival coordinator, you know, he is another person. Like, we just have this group of people, or Storm's partner, Annalise Ophelian, you know, that are, when we get together and have dinners or lunch, we, we kind of, we look at our world and what's going on, what needs to be improved. And also I think we're very good at like, where do we need to go as, as people? You know, I think Sean, um, I mean, it's, I'm so glad I'm here today with this beautiful view and just getting me off a couch is a huge <laughs> victory in my day, really. And and getting to talk to Michelle Miao is like Aww. a dream come true always. So, you know, I think very blessed. And the dinner table discussions, um, very good. Like last night, quick example. You know, we're stressed. We have a lot of work on our plate. And we're very blessed to have work. But we usually look at something maybe visually um, before we have dinner whether we agree with what we're watching or not. Mm -hmm. So we watched um, a, a short documentary on the artist Matthew Barney, who did the Cremaster films. And, you know, he's interesting to me because he, he got all of this sort of acclaim as a gender kind of rebel in the 90s with his art. And I thought my trip to the local corner store was way more radical than his art <laughs> and what I had to put up with. And so, you know, we, we watched it, and there were things he said that were smart and things we didn't like. But so I think, you know, we try to do that a lot. That is fun, fun, fun. Maybe one day I'll get an invitation to Shauna's home. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, for a conversation about art and people. So don't forget, join them this weekend. Join us uh, for the 20th anniversary of the Transgender Film Festival here in San Francisco. We'll also post the information for tickets up online. Thank you, Shauna. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you, John. Thank you. Don't go away. We'll continue with the Michelle Meow Show right after these messages. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, 
Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. Many nonprofits rely on events to raise money, create space for community gathering, and offer opportunities to network. But how many hours in a day do community leaders have when they're busy changing the world? Imagine your next event, gala, festival, or celebration professionally executed with creative ideas and ideals to match your community service. IDK is the community's trusted event production company. Visit idkevents.com for all your event production needs. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back to the Michelle Meow Show, your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. It is the very, very first program here at the Commonwealth Club with John Zipper. Uh, we are just experiencing an amazing sce- uh, scenic view right now, which is different from the Michelle Meow Studios at Coffee TV. Quite a bit. We're currently overlooking the bay and the Bay Bridge and a bunch <laughs> of cranes out there fixing a pier. <laughs> we have big, big news, big programs to come in the future. So Very make sure stuff, yeah. you check it out all at commonwealthclub.org slash meow. That's right. Our second half of the program, we will continue our special and focusing on the 20th year anniversary of the San Francisco Transgender Film Festival. And so, as we mentioned earlier, we actually have a filmmaker who uh, submitted his work, Storm Miguel Flores, on the line with us. Storm, welcome to the program. Hello, thanks for having me. So let's talk about your film um, a little bit. What, what did you submit? And I, I, if I understand correctly, it actually is still a work in progress? It is a work in progress. Um, it's called The Whistle. And uh, what I submitted was um, an extended trailer. Um, I've already submitted a trailer before I really had any footage because I wanted a way to get participants' interests um, and have them um, understand what the film was going to be about. So the original trailer is mostly, mostly just talking about the film and showing some B-roll um, um, and then the, the extended trailer, I, I went to Albuquerque and I filmed participants and interviews, got a lot of great B-roll, and so decided to make a, an extended trailer um, so that I could show something this year at the festival and also that I can um, kind of just let folks know what I'm working on. I'm really excited about it. So uh, give us a bit more on what we'll see in the finished story after you've, you've, you've pulled that all together. So um, I can tell you a little bit about The Whistle first. The Whistle yeah. is a documentary 
um, about a group of uh, lesbians who came out in the 70s and 80s um, who were all teenagers and um, in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I, at the time, uh, came out and identified as a lesbian or young guy. Um, and so I was a part of this kind of subculture that was going on in Albuquerque. Mm-hmm. It was very specific to this time and this location. Um, and there was a, a secret code that we had, a way of finding each other, and it was a whistle. And um, what was cool about this whistle is it was kind of hard to learn, and it was also really hard to hear unless you were listening for it. So you could be in a crowded room and see some you know, other girl with a mullet and think, yeah, she's probably out. She's probably family and do this whistle and she might think it's her friends whistling for her and turn around and, you know, you kind of just give each other the nod and, and move on or sometimes use it to, to get someone you know's attention. But it was just this way of us finding each other um, and communicating with each other and, um, and just kind of knowing that we weren't alone. Um, there was something real special going on in Albuquerque at that time about uh, that. With, there was just a lot of queers, a lot of queers, and like queer bars and places to be um, able to congregate. Um, so the final film will be interviews with folks who came out at that time, um, and interviews about basically what. There's a bit of a search for who started the whistle. How did how did that come about? Because even back then, when I would ask people, nobody knew. So I'm trying to trying to find that out, and also um, just trying to get folks' stories of what it was like coming out at that time. I really, really love this. I mean, you know, the the whistle being a, a symbol or a metaphor for a lot of things in the LGBTQ community in big urban cities. The whistle for not just the LGBTQ community, but it, it's it's used for safety purposes. Um, and you know, if you find yourself in a dangerous situation, but I know, like for example, the Castro would uh, volunteers would walk around the Castro uh, patrol volunteers and give away whistles if you felt like you were in danger. I wanted to ask, yeah, like, you know, just kind of um, if if that e- also evolves uh, for you personally in terms of um, your own safety, your feelings of comfort, now, you know, living here in the San Francisco Bay Area and your own, you know, identity evolving since the time in Albuquerque when it felt like there was a big queer community. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's so interesting because it is, I've only recently thought of our whistle back then, which was a, a, something we did with our mouth. It wasn't like an external whistle. I've only recently like had a, an understanding that it, it was about safety then too, but in a different way. It, was about, it wasn't about safety in the sense of like a warning or trying to call attention to ourselves um, if something bad was happening. It was more about safely finding each other. Um, because we couldn't wear T-shirts that had dikes sprawled across them, you know. We weren't really, yeah, there was just, there weren't ways that we were really flagging um, in obvious ways back then. So we had to find these safe ways of doing that. So in a way, it was about safety, um, and it it was about community, and, you know, we find safety in community. And, um, you know, looking to, to where I'm at now and being in San Francisco, it's definitely a different vibe. Like, I feel like what well, was well, one of the interesting things is when I moved to San Francisco, people, and I still identified as a dyke at that point, I hadn't transitioned yet, people saw me in a way that they didn't see me in, in Albuquerque. I was kind of invisible in Albuquerque. I was butch, and I think people just didn't have reference, so they just thought they were seeing a guy. 
um, if I was walking down the street holding hands with, you know, with a girlfriend who I, I often dated friends, um, or if I was walking down the street by myself, I didn't really get harassed or, or you know, called out very often. Um, and when I moved to San Francisco, people knew that I was uh, a young woman, and I either got, you know, uh, verbally kind of bashed for being queer, or I got, um, you know, just kind of that kind of thing that women get on the streets from cis men of just being kind of, you know, harassed. Um, and that was a shocker to me. I know that that wasn't quite um, the question, but that it just that's where my kind of train of thought went around, like what's safe and what feels safe, what doesn't feel safe. Mm-hmm. San Francisco is this mecca, and it's this place where you go to, to be safely queer. Um, there's also something about people having a reference point for who you are um, and being more visible that, that feels a little less safe. That, that's really interesting. I, I, you know, you just stereotypically assume it would be just the opposite, you know, San Francisco and Albuquerque. Um, so this film, are you? Is this a, a project that that you're you're putting it together? Do you have people working with you? Um, tell us about how, the project, if you will. Okay, sure, sure. I am um, I am the director mm-hmm. uh, and co-producing with my my partner Annalise Ophelian, who uh, directed and produced Major and is working on a film called Looking for Leia right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're kind of a team these days, which is really exciting. Uh, we work on each other's films, and she is my also my uh, director of photography for this film. So we're, you know, we have other folks working with us. Um, Gwen Park, who is an awesome camera person, came with us to Albuquerque uh, in September mm-hmm. to film, and we met up with some folks there that we know in the, in the film industry. And we filmed interviews and... Um, we also filmed a, uh, I, I kind of staged a reunion um, so that I could get everybody together. And it was, I say staged, but it really ended up being a reunion of folks who were out at that time. Um, we had a party and folks came and I was able to film them and not as much interview them because it was just, it was pretty loud. But um, just get everybody in one place and get everybody kind of reminiscing and, and telling stories and um and, and yeah, so and we're going to go back and get a few more interviews and, and fill in um, with B-roll or any any kind of extra information we need uh, probably early next year. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping to be done with the film by the end of 2018. Storm, you know, I I just mentioned to Shauna before we let her go about how all of of those who submit, who contribute, who work on the film festival, you know, it feels like a family. And so it doesn't surprise mm-hmm. me that you know, you'd feel comfortable sharing pieces of a work in progress and feel confident that, you know, when it's, once it gets done, it will also be just as supportive. Um, but yeah, if mm-hmm. you could talk about just kind of the community feel and what the film festival means to you and the sure. relationships that you have with those um, who contribute to all of this, that'd be great. Sure. It, what's so great about this festival is that it really does feel like community. Um, it, does, it's never, it never feels like competition. It never feels like, um, know, there's just there's no, a lot of like intimidation by other filmmakers. It really feels like a, a community. Um, you have all different levels and kind of stages of filmmaking or filmmakers um, submitting and being accepted to this film festival. So that's something that's really cool because I have submitted earlier things that just weren't 
nearly as, you know, in my opinion, good as, as, you know, just kind of polished as what I might be submitting now. And I know that I still have so much room for improvement. And I love that all kind of stages of myself as a filmmaker get to be present throughout time at this film festival. Um, I've always felt supported. I've always felt like, I've always felt supportive and, and excited about other people's films there. And, and it's, um, it's trans-themed films, mostly trans filmmakers, but there have been non-trans filmmakers who have um, submitted films that were trans-themed or that, are, you know, that, that were centered around trans folks. And it's always just felt really, um, just like really like a lot of representation there. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a very exciting thing. And, and I, you know, the Fresh Meat family um, is kind of the like umbrella for the Transgender Film Festival and Sean Dorsey Dance and the Fresh Meat Festival. Um, I've been in community with Sean and Shauna for, for years. and But I also remember, like, Shauna being this person who I didn't know and just being kind of starstruck and, um, and a little intimidated just because she was such a rock star and it's such a rock star, but then I met her and I was like, oh my God, you're the sweetest person and so welcoming and so wanting to create safe and familial and celebratory space for trans and gender non-conforming people. And I think it's a, it's a wonderful, unique thing in film, especially film can be kind of a cutthroat <laughs> um, kind of scene, I guess. Yeah. And this always just looks really welcoming, and it's more about the stories. Storm, I want to thank you so much for joining us here on the program and for sharing a little bit of your film. Uh, I know many of us who also are part of the family and part of the community are excited to see your your work. Uh, and so thank you. Thank you so much, Michelle and John, for having me. If uh, folks want to learn more about the film, you can go to www.dykewhistle.com. Don't go away. We'll continue with the Michelle Meow Show right after these messages. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boyes came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face with today's thought leaders.
And now, back to the Michelle Meow Welcome Show. back. Wow, today has just been an awesome, awesome day. I love this. This feels so great. It's always fun talking to creative folks when they're really involved in something that not only they're hoping to put together, but they've, they've been able to do it and express themselves, and then they share it with people. Yeah. The, the excitement and the personal impact of that, I think, is always good. Yeah, but also, you know, many people now are probably interested or uh, wanting to learn more about the transgender community. Not only do we have presence in you know mainstream media of transgender people, but now we have elected officials. <laughs> How exciting. They've been doing the work. A big part of it is to, of course, run for these offices. It's uh, for those who do have the money to fund these things. That's, you know, what a part, large part of what Hillary Clinton is now devoting her time to is raising money to get more women candidates and women of color and people of color and, and to get the more, the lack of a better term, the, you know, the mosaic that's represented in the American people actually in power and in office. And so they s saw successes from that. That's what Tom Steyer was doing, also addressing the other part of it, which is get out and vote. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because uh, traditionally, uh, Democrats don't vote in as high as numbers in high numbers as they do during presidential years in non-presidential years. Did I say that correctly? They tend to turn out more in presidential years. They get excited for that and then they kind of, the midterms are like, oh, okay, that's you know we'll just we're waiting for the next presidential. Um, and so it's not uncommon then for you know there to be this this swing a bit toward the Republicans during non presidential years, even if there's a, a Democrat in the White House, for example. Um, this year, certainly with all of the attention, the focus, uh, the uh, tweeted insults, <laughs> uh, I think you've had Democrats really energized, and now they see, okay, that, that all translates into actually getting folks into office, and a broad array of folks, including a new a, a Republican mayor of Hoboken, uh, New Jersey, who's a Sikh. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it and this is all good. You know, it's it's more people seeing people like themselves in power um, and more voters kind of turning out and seeing, oh, my gosh, my vote does matter. Yeah, I've been dying to ask you about the, the Democratic Party. And I know you're going to have a program with Donna Brazil and it'll be interesting to hear from her, especially yeah. since the launch of her book and the the uh, allegations of what happened at the DNC. But what do you think? Do you think that this actually makes us a more unified, stronger party to see a good number of Democrats elected? Um, I'm going to throw out that old quote. Uh, I forget who says it. Uh, I think it was some old movie cowboy who said something like, uh, I'm not a member of an organized party. I'm a Democrat. You know, <laughs> the, meaning the Democrats were always very rambunctious, divided. You know, it's, a, it's always been a coalition of lots of different people. You know, northern labor unions, southern racists, and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And then it evolved to a lot of other types of coalitions in the 70s. And that's evolved, you know, more recently. Um, and so there's always going to be arguing. Having lost an election and then having lost such um, a strange election, you know, very emotionally <laughs> charged election, um, that had followed even, you know, very tempestuous primary elections in both parties, um, I think that even antagonized, f the, you know, different camps further. You know, obviously, we, to in shorthand, you could say the, the Bernie folks and the Hillary folks. Well, having some victories now of the party, 
Um, it's nice to see actually that it's, it, it, when we're talking about like a broad array of folks, both sides, if you will, saw successes, you know, this week on Tuesday in the Democratic Party. So that will, I think, go a bit toward dulling some of the circular firing squad sort of things of, you know, Democrats sniping at each other when they realize it, it actually does matter if you control the legislature in Virginia. It actually does matter if you control the city council and so-and-so place. Um, so I think it could be. It doesn't mean that we won't break out into further fights. Uh, Donna Brazil, as you mentioned, actually will be speaking tonight at the Commonwealth Club. Uh, it's a very sold out program. Um, and uh, it will be interesting to hear how she not just revisits kind of some of the stuff that she's been talking about lately, but also the fact checking and, and counter arguments that have been made and the critiques of what she said uh, by Democrats and journalists who have basically said, Mm, not so sure about that, you know. So, but you know that kind that kind of thing is, I think, ultimately good in mm -hmm. the sense that that is just hashing stuff out and saying, okay, what really happened, and really what you have to come down to is, okay, if we want a party here, one kind or another, and again, this is going on in the Republican side and the Democrat side. You know, if if we're going to go together in some sort of a party, we have to still figure out it's kind of these mundane things that really do matter how we hold our primaries, who has what power, you know, who funds who, and if you're funding someone, what power do they have, and what power do, you know, how do you notify people, who gets to uh, sign off on the hiring of the new spokesperson for the party, all of that stuff, which even bores me, and I'm a political nut, you know, <laughs> um, but it is important and it's powerful, and, and I, I think probably what we'll see is a bit more attention being paid to some of those decisions internally, then most people will start to get really bored with it. But they'll also see that, okay, this stuff is being addressed. Yeah. And I, so that kind of also helps because it kind of gives some bit, some buy-in. You know, you, both sides will start to see, okay, hey, our people are still there. So, right. okay, good. Now let's focus on defeating so-and-so. Okay, my last question, and, and uh, I'm excited that I'll get to see you now consistently on, on yes. Thursdays. Thursdays. No more Tuesdays, it's Thursdays Tuesdays here. are terrible. <laughs> the we hate Club. Tuesdays, but Thursdays. <laughs> that, Thursdays are the new Tuesdays. That's right. We never got around to the tacos anyway. Um, <laughs> so is Donald Trump in trouble? This is your opinion and your opinion only. Only my opinion. The Commonwealth <laughs> Club does not take political positions. Um, Certainly, if you are reading the political press, what they're saying is he's got trouble because he candidate the the Republicans have been kind of in in you know in Congress and in other legislative seats and in governorships have been kind of realizing oh before this oh um, I may not agree with this guy but I've got to keep quiet because my people will not vote for me if I go against Donald Trump. So what we found in Virginia was they had a Republican candidate who ran a Donald Trump-style campaign, including, you know, some pretty offensive stuff, um, and lost. And then Trump then turns on him, even after having endorsed him, and says, oh, it was all this idiot's fault. Um, so you're, you, you then have Republicans saying, wait a minute, okay, so if I differ from the president, I can lose. If I agree with the president and basically adopt his policies, I can lose. And then the, the, what, the final nail in the coffin, if you will, is that the Democrats are so energized now. So 
your people are kind of angry at you because you've taken one decision or the other on, on whether or not you agree with the president on a policy or just general support of him. And at the same time, all the people who want to get you out of office are ginned up. Mm-hmm. And if I can say one thing, and this this is an in the weeds thing, but it, it, it actually is important when we're talking about, you know, people getting involved on the local level in some of these smaller races. Thanks so much for tuning in today. For more on us and other programs or podcasts you might have missed, you can head to michellemeow.com.